Before we begin, it should be emphasized to the fullest extent that the content of this podcast in no way represents the thoughts and opinions of the U.S. government or Peace Corps Uganda. That said, let's get started. All right, welcome and thank you for downloading episode three of Africa's Pearl. My name is Dominic Combs. Every year, millions of dollars gets donated to developing countries around the world. Money goes from the pockets of some compassionate husband and wife living in places like the suburbs of Delaware, the city of Tampa, Florida, or Sacramento, California, to either a non-governmental organization or a private foundation whose offices are probably in Washington, D.C. From D.C., the money makes its journey to most likely Africa, Latin America, or Southeast Asia in hopes that it will make those who are less fortunate better off. State governments in developed countries also do something similar every year. These acts, by and large, seem compassionate and altruistic. People who have the most well-meaning intentions give away their hard-earned money to people they will never meet. And they do this every single year. What could go wrong? Well, surprisingly, more than I think most people would like to admit. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the topic that gets even less news than something like inflation in Zimbabwe. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about foreign aid. Now, I'm not an economist, and I'm surely not an expert on this topic, but there was a paper written by Roger C. Riddle, who's a development specialist at Oxford University, on the topic, which is titled, Does Foreign Aid Work? I'll be using this paper quite a bit in this episode, along with a paper that William Easterly wrote as well. So let's, let's just dive in here. First, the difference between foreign aid and humanitarian aid must be sort of uh, discussed more. Development aid takes the form of more longer-term projects, and humanitarian aid is for more short-term emergencies. It should be noted in this uh, episode, I'm going to use emergency aid and humanitarian aid interchangeably. Even the harshest critics of foreign aid, like Dambi Samoyo and William Easterly, are both on board with humanitarian aid projects. Surprisingly, though, there isn't much robust evidence that emergency aid works very well. Too few studies have been done, and the ones that have been done are not well-constructed and reliable, given their methodologies. Of course, lives have been saved, But the main complaint by folks that receive emergency aid is that the aid doesn't even meet the desired needs. One study found that within a span of five years, only 64% of emergency needs were met after natural disasters. This problem is made worse because of the mismatch of allocation of aid. Uh, World Bank data from 2013 shows that in the same year, 57% of needs were met, but only 50% uh, 50 of health needs, 41% of housing needs, and only 33% of needs were met regarding sanitation, education, and clean drinking water. Reason being is that there is simply a major lack of coordination between agencies. Another problem continues to be a lack of skilled emergency aid workers on the ground. Another well-cited reason for emergency aid not working is because of corruption. Even though sometimes it is difficult to prove corruption exists, a couple concrete examples do stand out. One comes from a place that some people might expect, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where 
in one instance, an estimated 85% of aid failed to reach those in need. And then there's another example that comes from a place you might not necessarily guess. It's the United States. In 2006, when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, reports analyzing the funds given to victims estimated that 16% of funds that had been, had been lost due to fraud, adding up to about $1.4 billion. So this, this is sort of a natural experiment that shows that it doesn't matter if aid is, is even being uh, donated to developing countries or developed ones. When you're sending, when you're donating large amounts of AIDS through these channels, it's easy for it to get lost along the way. There's also a moral point to be made here as well. The reality is, when it comes to emergency aid, folks are trying to react very fast in order to help those in need. Our longing to help those who are suffering often outweighs our judgment when it comes to whether or not aid will work properly. When disasters strike, we donate. Agencies are not always communicating as well as they should, and we virtually never have enough emergency aid responders. Aid responses are a very sort of just big mess, which in turn makes it easier for money to get lost along the way. When the next disaster strikes, few people are going to be sitting around a table rigorously debating the effectiveness of emergency aid. Organizations are simply going to write checks, and it's hard really to blame them. What we need to do is indeed write the checks, but we also need to evaluate the performance from the day the check is written and over probably the next 10 years or so. Agencies have to continue to evaluate and monitor the success of their projects. Aid agencies also need to be much more interconnected and in agreement about their objectives. Also, officials have to be held accountable for donations. If money goes missing, People need to lose their jobs. Someone has to pay for like something like $1.4 billion going missing when it's supposed to get to victims that have just been, their lives have been completely ruined due to hurricanes. As the great economist Thomas Sowell once said, quote, I cannot think of a more stupid or dangerous way of making decisions than by putting decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong, end quote. Okay, so that was our brief talk about emergency aid. Now I want to briefly talk about development aid. Development aid also suffers from some of the same things as emergency aid. Evaluation and its effectiveness are a big deal and gets criticized all the time. Critics of development aid are steadfast. These folks include uh, economists like Dembisa Moyo and William Easterly, as mentioned before, among many others and their criticisms are not unjustified. In the last five decades, Western powers have donated around $2.3 trillion in aid, and still children by the millions die every year from preventable diseases. Easterly, in one of his papers, talks about how even after $2.3 trillion was donated, governments still can't manage to get medication to children that would prevent half of all deaths from malaria. Did I mention that the medication costs only 12 cents a dose? $2.3 trillion later and people still don't have $4 bed nets. $2.3 trillion later and we still can't get $3 to every mother, which would prevent 5 million child deaths every year. Easterly says, quote, 
It's a tragedy that so much well-meaning compassion did not bring these results for the needy, end quote. Easterly goes on to talk about the ineffectiveness of loans given by the World Bank to promote markets and fair elections. He goes on to say, quote, The evidence is stark. $568 billion spent on aid, and yet the typical African country is no richer than it was 40 years ago. Easterly thinks that the evidence shows that giving aid leads to more corrupt governments and actually promotes fewer governments to become democratic. So, for the listener's sake here, I'm going to attempt to get to the point and, and sort of summarize Easterly and Riddle's papers here. These are the things that they talk about are just the, the main problems with donating uh, foreign aid to developing countries. So the reality is, so the argument goes, when governments, non-governmental organizations, and private foundations give foreign aid, they, number one, are not held accountable. Number two, people don't conduct randomized control trials when they give aid. That is, they don't take the time to analyze a specific group of people for eligibility, say, people with similar education, income, and access to a savings account, and then randomly select a portion of that group for the aid, while at the same time keep keeping an eye on the folks in the sample that never received the aid in the first place. In short, Agencies don't take the time to answer this question. If the people that you gave aid to never received your aid at all, would they be worse off or better off? Number three, money often gets lost due to fraud and mismanagement and often never reaches the poor. Number four, people don't know the context of communities that they are donating money. They have not taken the time to estimate the demand for the project or the commodity they are trying to donate. Number five, they don't have long-term goals. Projects need to be based and played out over decades, not years. This will ensure specific amounts of money for agencies, so they also won't have to worry about running out of funds uh, when they're trying to do these projects. Number six, agencies are not communicating the way they should. We need to have common goals and objectives. We can't have every agency giving out bed nets. This would be inefficient and wasteful. Agencies need to jointly fund projects in the future. Number seven, agencies don't understand that, paradoxically, the majority of poor people living in the world don't live in the poorest countries like Liberia in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Burundi. They live in middle-income countries like China and India which have populations that are outrageously higher than those other countries just mentioned. Okay, so we understand some criticisms about foreign aid and emergency aid, but regardless of what critics say, I'm inclined not to buy their whole story just yet. The reality is that institutions that give aid have only been around for about 60 years, which in the grand scheme is not too long. Also, aid does save lives, Riddle, in his paper, states that Each year, millions of children are immunized and receive basic health care, or go to school as a direct result of aid used to fund schools and school places. Aid does indeed build clinics, supply drugs, and distributes vaccines. It successfully trains teachers and nurses and, play and pays their salaries. 
it does fund the successful distribution of antiretroviral drugs and bed nets to millions of those who need them. Tens of millions of people have been provided with clean water and sanitation. Hundreds of thousands of classrooms and roads have been built with aid funds. There are some truly amazing individual success stories, such as the global eradication of smallpox, which aid played a crucial part in achieving. End quote. So that's, I mean, I can also sort of add to that quote from, from Riddle's paper. The, I, I currently volunteer at a school and a health center that both have received aid. And just to talk about the health center that I'm at, we have thousands of patients that, that visit this health center. And thousands of children have been immunized as a result of, of funding from USAID and UK aid. So it's hard to just look at aid in general and just think that it's a bad idea or that it's simply looking at it in a simplistic way and say that it just doesn't work. The truth of the matter is that it's much more complicated than it seems, like almost all economic phenomenon. And the reality is, whether Easterly or, or Dambisamoyo like it or not, aid is not going away anytime soon. So in the meantime, we need to figure out how aid can work and exalt situations that it does work so everyone can learn from them. Today on the podcast, I speak with a very bright young man, a man who we and development organizations can all learn from. We speak almost entirely about foreign aid, and perhaps most importantly, we talk about a scenario when foreign aid actually worked. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now, without further ado, I give you my guest. Okay, so today I am speaking with Koesi Moses Williet. Uh, he went to secondary school at Chinuni Integrated. He then went on to uh, study religion at Ugandan Baptist Seminary for four years in Masaka. He then went on to teach at Kabagala Baptist Primary School. Uh, he first started, he began teaching religion or religious studies, and then he was promoted to teaching math. He's also a school administrator, and he uh, is an aspiring lawyer as well at the same time. So. Uh, welcome to the third episode of Africa's Pearl, Moses. Uh, thank you. Uh, so today I want to talk to you about uh, foreign aid uh, is, the, is the topic of this episode. Uh, and um, I guess I want to start from the beginning and talk about when people were first having aspirations to build this school, um, what were their options, you know, regarding being able to build it? Or, or did that opportunity only come when you had the chance to receive aid from, from other folks? Yeah, uh, before, before even, like, getting the, the, the aid, people had their, 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 because the need was there. Mm -hmm. So they had to use whatever they, they had at that time, the resources they had. Mm -hmm. Like, they had land, they were, they were a small piece of land. And people used that with the papyrus, uh, the, papy the papyrus carpets made. So they got trees and some kind of poles. They punched them mm -hmm. as form forms of like classrooms. That they they, oh. they used those ones at that st at the start because the need was there. They just had mats. Yeah, we had yeah. mats at yeah. first. 
you had no rooms we had no rooms <laughs> yeah. we had nothing at mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. and people I, some of them were using the trees we had a big mango tree mm-hmm. so people were using that one at, at the start mm-hmm. and we had to start because the need was there mm-hmm. uh, uh, how did we come to get uh, the, the aid people came we, we got people who came to like to kind of like it was a mission Mm-hmm. They had come for the church mm-hmm. and they were going for the evangelism and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Now when they toured around the village and they saw our art to advance the education system of the village because that was one of the needs of mm-hmm. our village. So they were able, to, that thing touched them. They saw, we were yearning, we, we, we were like planning mm-hmm. with the little things we had at that moment. And when they had, they went back, they were like, they kept, that thing hurted them. They went on thinking about it. Was this something that they immediately sort of knew? So when they went back home, back to, and where are they from again? Could you mention? They were, they are, they were from America in, in a certain uh, province that is Texas. Texas, uh-huh. Yeah, and that group is called the tre- Treasure in Clay. Mm-hmm. So they, when they, they came, they saw the need mm-hmm. and they saw how we were passionate mm-hmm. and how we were even creative in our mm-hmm. lack of the yeah. materials and yeah. the resources. Mm-hmm. So when they went back, they were touched. It took some time mm-hmm. and what they did at first was like they were able to raise a little portion of amount and that one was like used it to cement those to put there the temporary buildings well, and how, how much did they so these these folks come and they're they're acting as sort of missionaries when they first get here mm, yeah. they walk around chinuni mm. and they realize all of the kids that sort of are wandering about during the day and not mm. in school mm. and they realize they want to help build a school mm. and so they go back home and then how much uh if you don't mind me asking how much money in the beginning, were they willing to donate to, like, how did that process work? Because you have to figure out, obviously, the money for the land, the buildings, uh, you know, where to buy the land, uh, you know, those types of things. Yeah, uh, at, at first, according to, 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 to what is uh, revealed, uh, at first it was not that big. It was just small and it was specifically for a certain purpose because when they came they saw the rooms kids were the rooms that we had constructed they had dust in them mm-hmm. and because they, they were was dusty they had even formed turned it to form jiggers with, with oh, the jigger worms so, yeah there were jigger worms and they were attacking the kids could you explain for some folks that don't know what those are what, the, what, what those so, are these are kind of like small uh, you can call them insects. They touch the sensitive parts on the body, like the toes, the fingers, mm-hmm. and like they, they 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 build on on the body, and they even they can cause like the 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 the, the, the thing the nails can even be plucked out mm-hmm. because of those. And if you find that you are you are also not that clean, mm-hmm. you may even end up having them on your early balls on. So sometimes when even they attack you, it's hard to suppress them. Like you can't use just pesticides and what. Mm-hmm. So they are kind of pests that touch the body and they 
I, we want to feed on the human. I can imagine body. it makes it easier for these mm. insects when if you sleep on the floor, and yeah, you're not yeah. sleeping in yes, an actual yes. yeah in a bed. Yes. So even when when they came, that problem was much much common here, and because even these kids we had by that time were from the village within the village, mm -hmm. and some of them even they had them at their home. Mm -hmm. So they were like whenever they come to school, they could spoil, they could transfer them like they could hide in the dust, the other dust, and they were so that so they were touched by that. So when they went back, they sent a certain portion of money specifically for mm -hmm. making the floor like making just making a yes floor. making floor using cement cementing it mm -hmm. and also instead of us having the papyrus mats mm -hmm. we form we get the the the, the iron iron sheets mm -hmm. we put the iron sheets and even up we put the iron sheets mm -hmm. So that's specifically what they say when you say, say iron sheets you're talking about the roof the like roof. the, the yes. tin roof yes. okay. mm -hmm. so that's what we, we, when they sent, we were able to cement two rooms, mm -hmm. and also we put the 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 the, the, the iron iron sheets mm -hmm. uh, besides, and also the roofing up. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's the first thing we did. I mean, it helped us. It helped us to eradicate or to reduce. The, the jigger the jiggers from, from the staff. Yeah, that, that seems like uh, could be step one to yeah. to creating an environment for students to yes. learn. Uh -huh. And and from from that we were able to uh, to get we were we were able to get to by that time we were like seeing it as a great opportunity because people were who we were studying in under the trees and also in dust. Now we had the two uh, constructed structures mm -hmm. uh, we, which were cemented and by that time according even to the limited space we had because the space was very little mm -hmm. the other space was already there for the church so the but it sounds like so these folks come they realize the need mm -hmm. they go back home to texas mm -hmm. they send they donate some money mm -hmm. but what you're saying it sounds like they're not even it's not all given at one time they yeah. gave like you know, chunks of money at a time so you mm. could construct each building. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what? What? When they they went? Mm -hmm. uh, so every every time we could stay communicating with them, mm -hmm. we tell them uh, what is on the ground, mm -hmm. how we are progressing. So we used it to inform them. And now time came because where we were staged, there was a, a chance of expansion. The, we had it the neighboring people who were who had their property their land were willing to sell yeah they were uh -huh. willing to sell uh -huh. and when we whenever we had the opportunity of those people selling we mm -hmm. could inform the other people uh -huh. ah, that we are selling this and when we informed them they, they could think of a way to help mm -hmm. because uh, we, we used it to inform them to update them on what is going on mm -hmm. and whenever we could tell them that they are selling this they were not selling the oral part at once. People used to get their own problems in life and they yeah. wanted the money, so they had to use their property to, to rescue themselves mm -hmm. from those problems. Mm -hmm. So they, had, they, they sold their piece of land slowly by slowly. Mm -hmm. So whenever they could sell, they could say that they are selling, we could also write back to our friends, we informed them that they are selling this part of, of, of this piece of land. So those people, they could think of a way 
mm-hmm. very fast. So sometimes they could purchase that land mm-hmm. as as uh, for the school, mm-hmm. and when they purchased, we constructed our first building. So the first building we constructed had had four rooms on it. So the four classes, mm-hmm. very big classes, and two offices mm-hmm. for the administration to uh, sit in. Yeah, and how many students did you have in uh, the beginning? So in the beginning we had like 100. And what age were these students? And we are very young, between uh, seven, between three and, and seven mm-hmm. there. So, and, and because on the village education was not, uh, they did value education at the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were like, because the, most of the schools were very far, and also those who could reach, you, you know, you find it's hard for a kid of three years to walk a distance of like five kilometers to a school. Right. So, and according even to the security of, of those kids, you don't guarantee their security. Yeah. So when we started, we had also to take a task of sensitizing the parents and informing them, informing them how important it is for, our, for, for the kids to go in school. Mm-hmm and they attain education. And this is a, a benefit to, I think it should be mentioned that Kabagala is a day school and a boarding school, so yeah. a lot of students stay here. Mm-hmm. And one thing, one of the things I noticed right away when I got to Uganda was how many boarding schools there are. Like mm-hmm. it seems like every school is a day and a boarding school. Yeah. And it, I can only imagine this is because of the distance and difficulty students have just getting to school. So they're like, mm. let's just have them live here. Yeah. Um, so what causes that is that the, the school, some of them, they are distant, like, like they are far from the settlements of people. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you find that to gal- you don't guarantee the security of the kids on the way. Mm-hmm. That's why sometimes they correct them, like those who live far, they join in boarding section to build to get the services near them, not having uh, to walk long distances mm-hmm. according to the time they, they end school and the time they have to reach school. Mm-hmm. So we find that we, are, we had to construct that. So, but before, before even we, we, we started the boarding section, because the school was started majorly for the people within the village. So uh, we, saw, we saw the need of like, at first, we had the, the the space we had was just limited, and we could only afford the day scholars. We could not make kids sleep over. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, uh, we were lucky enough, and again we got another support, which was which helped us to purchase another extra land. Mm-hmm. And on that extra land, we are able uh, to construct a, a, another. Building. And this is all from the same church, yeah, correct? In this Texas. is all from the same people. So they have they have been like selling in uh, periods like yeah. seasons. Like when they get, they send for us. So th- this is a big criticism that mm. a lot of people have when it comes to foreign aid mm. is that it's too short term minded. Mm. Like people, a lot of aid projects mm. have a turnover rate of like a year. Mm. So a big, uh, you know, the World Bank or someone will give money mm-hmm. and they'll say in a year, show us the results. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you need to have more of a long-term 
goal yeah. in mind. Yeah, and yeah. so how many years has this church been donating money to, to sort of establish the school? Yeah, I think now it's now a period of, uh, it's now taking seven years. Mm -hmm. It's now taking seven years because at first we had no, we were just stopping at lower levels, the, yeah. the, the middle classes. Mm -hmm. But now because uh, since that time we have now reached the, mm -hmm. the, the last level of primary. Yeah, and as a result, the school has, has expanded as well. Like yeah. you said in the beginning, there was about 100 students yeah. from the ages of 3 to mm -hmm. 7. Yeah. And now you have... Now, now we have expanded and now we have 387 mm -hmm. students, almost 400. Yeah, and ranging from the ages of... And ranging from the ages of 3 mm -hmm. to 15, mm -hmm. depending on when the kid started schooling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Another question I have is, well, first I just want to reiterate how, how awesome that progress is and how the, the relationship between Kavagala Baptist Church and the Baptist Church in Texas have really sort of zeroed in on sort of that long-term goal to, it's a gradual process, you know, that the payoff won't come in a year. But another big criticism people have about aid is, is how to handle the money. And could you talk a little bit about when you get donations of money, how do they send the money? Who does the money go to? How do you decide what to spend the money on? Yeah. Like, because it seems that there's been clear progress that's been made yeah. at this school. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you were able to navigate that. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, thing is like, it's almost, it's just uh, trusty. Trustworthy, being trustworthy, because uh, some people they are whenever they get money, they 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 are thinking is just thinking of themselves. That selfish interest. So if someone is needs to be uh, a progress or success with uh, for any foreign aid, mm -hmm. that person has to deny himself, deny the self interest thing, mm -hmm. and you think of uh, what is the need. Mm -hmm what should be done. Mm -hmm. So because here we saw the need was there, mm -hmm. and even the people who were donating the money, they knew the need. Mm -hmm. And what also has helped that other than having a trustworthy person, because that money is sent to that person, that is Pastor Abe Segelin. Mm -hmm. is the, oh, the, so the money was always, has yeah. it always been sent to yeah, Pastor Abe? Pastor Abe Segelin, and okay. is the one to uh, see mm -hmm. what is to be put mm -hmm. on press. Mm -hmm. And even the people who send the money, they don't just send and they stay there. Uh -huh. So they all fall up. They evaluate. Uh -huh. So we have been receiving them yearly, like every year. Oh, they come every year? Yeah, every year they oh, wow, come okay. and they see oh, the man, progress. I would love to meet them Yeah, when you, they come. You, you meet them okay, great. when they do come, like that mm -hmm. is next year. Because this one is just ending. So when they do come, Mm -hmm. they, 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 they come and they always sensitize, they always meet with the women, they conduct conferences mm -hmm. for the women and also for the leaders. Mm -hmm. So when they, when, they, when, they, when they come and they do such things, they, they always see mm -hmm. the progress and they see the challenges and they see what is needed. Mm -hmm. So when they go back and they go with a, a picture, a great thing, 
for 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 them. Ah, yeah. So what has caused more of like people embezzled in such funds like the foreign aid is that sometimes it comes and people they don't follow up to see the details and yeah. even they don't go to actual places in the fields to see what is going on because we have seen people taking even photos for them they are working on photos mm -hmm. because yeah. someone can get a photo from somewhere and send it to you saying saying that this is the thing mm -hmm. but if you go there in person mm -hmm. and you see that thing and even sometimes you talk to people on the ground mm -hmm. they tell you the whole thing there is no way that person can hide such thing he is yeah. always accountable because he knows people are coming to evaluate people are coming to check what is going on yeah. so that's the only challenge with foreign aid if you want it to be effective there has to be a follow-up yeah. there has to be also people following because in fact in fact sometimes even when you follow up you will see where you needed to advance where you needed to change mm -hmm. other than just sitting there and you you just listen from someone who is informing you yeah yeah that is it yeah i'm wondering just i guess i'm wondering what makes this situation so seemingly good in the sense that there has to be because there are lots of people that donate with really good intentions that's mm, like yeah. you know the hallmark of donating mm, you know mm, aid mm. is you have really good intentions but so mm. often it ends up not making people much better or, or the funds end up going somewhere else. Mm. Like I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, in this, in the circumstance of Pastor Abel Sagrinia getting mm. the money, you know, he's very well known mm. in this community. Yes. And so he would pay and like, perhaps did, how many people knew he was getting money to give to the school? Because, I'm thinking maybe it's like he gets the money mm. and he would pay such a price if people found out he wasn't doing the right thing with it. Mm. You know, I mean, as much as I want to sit here and just think mm. people are trusting and they want to do the right thing, mm. you know, money goes missing all the time. Yeah. And I'm wondering what was it about this situation that mm. made him seemingly over the last seven years always be putting the money in the right place or where people want it to go you mm. know now uh one of the things uh they call the some of the characters of this individual person Asabe, first of all he's he was passionate mm -hmm. to to the community mm -hmm. he he even at the start before even these people were like they they came up he was passionate to see how the the community is transformed mm -hmm. in kinds of in fields of education mm -hmm. so that's why you saw you, you see that everything that comes because he's driven by the passion he has mm -hmm. for the community then another thing he's uh is a is one of the people who who are kind mm. they have they they are trustworthy and they are even they are his, his nature is kind like he's he has a heart for the people so that one drives him. In fact, there is no, there were no single individuals who knew that he was given such amount of money. People didn't know. Yeah, they didn't he know. Was, they didn't yes, know. They didn't even know that the he was given teachers kind of and people. They... Not even teachers. Oh, it was okay. just a few people, maybe on the staff, that uh -huh. were, that he told that I was given. Okay. Because here yeah, there is a challenge. If you 
if people tend to know that you, you are giving money, money uh-huh. what comes into their mind yeah. is we share mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah we share yeah. what portion do you give me right. some of them even they turn to be your enemies because you they gave you money and you didn't give them so when they see you uh bring certain things they start saying that ah, it's the money is now on other people's money enjoying it eh? you mm-hmm. see so sometimes we, it's like when you inform the oral community they tend to be lazy in that kind of thing and thinking that they will only feed on that mm-hmm. maybe even another thing uh i think it should be the phone the phone aid should be also uh, of a, a period right there has to be a period of time because what i have turned to see it there is a way it promotes uh, if, if if there is the, the dependence and people they are only de- waiting for the aid to do something instead of like if there are certain things like in this school as an administrator of it i've got a challenge in, in one way or the other to advance certain things because there are certain things we, we need to do as as the school mm-hmm. but you find that it is hard for the parents to get involved in it mm-hmm. uh, because they know other people will be giving in the, the money mm-hmm. but if there is a period of one way or the other and all, both the parties they contribute the foreign aid contributes and also these other individuals who are receiving the the, the donation who are beneficiaries yeah. they also contribute you find that the thing is booming mm-hmm. not just living it like now here uh, time reached what what they have done they were informing us that if because they were doing everything for us as mm-hmm. the school mm-hmm. they were paying the teachers salary they were feeding the kids they were doing uh, the, the construction of things so now what we decided what they decided to do they said okay now we are going to reduce mm. on our donation mm. and you have to think okay. of one way or okay. the other now as the school and the parents we sat and we combined we discussed we you, as the parents you have to give us a smaller portion of money to cater for the salaries of the teachers and that one is we are seeing that is now developing also so for them they are not, nowadays they are only catering for the feedings of the kids yeah so the food the, because our kids be it a day scholar or a boarding mm-hmm. they have to eat breakfast mm-hmm. they have to eat lunch they eat even supper mm-hmm. those who sleep over uh-huh. now now as the school and the parents we cater for the salaries of the teachers and other things of the school right now we we are uh, we, we are still struggling to find uh, permanent structures uh, we construct our dormitories we, we lack the dormitories we, we are just using we are just using a, a smaller just smaller looms mm-hmm. which we, we are deconstructed for other purposes but we turned them to be boarding to put them temporarily for the kids for the kids to sleep over so that's what we are seeing but we are seeing a progress yeah. so what what we what even has helped us in that context the, the people who are donating to us they have not left completely they always come in and they share the advices of the things we can do 
and they also say what we can like do for us to be able to help yeah. in that work. That's yeah, that's really great. So mm. I have yeah, that that um, makes me want to touch on a lot of points. So mm. um, first, I'll say mm. the the sustainability aspect of mm. the aid is really crucial there, yeah, and yes. this coincides with a lot of the yeah. the literature on mm. it. And so mm. people, when they donate money, mm. they like for instance, if I just pulled out um, 50,000 shillings mm. and walked down the street mm. and gave it to the first Boda Boda driver that came mm. by me. Mm. You know, this isn't seen as development at all. Yeah, you know, th- this because because it's not sustainable. It yeah, didn't make not. anyone more productive, mm. more educated. Mm. Uh, it didn't it didn't increase anyone's productive capabilities. Mm. And so they didn't just give you money. They gave you money with the intention uh, of creating sustainability yeah. for a school. Mm. And they also gave it in a multifaceted way, mm-hmm. which is something that there was a paper that came out in 2015 by a really brilliant economist named mm. Esther Duflo mm. from MIT. And she did a multifaceted uh, approach um i won't go into the the paper that she wrote but it's the idea is similar to what you were talking about because Mm -hmm. they they came in with Mm -hmm. their with their aid they paid for construction they Mm -hmm. helped with salaries Mm -hmm. they also helped with feeding of the students Mm -hmm. it wasn't just we'll build the buildings and we're gone Mm -hmm. or we'll pay for salaries then Mm -hmm. we're gone it's um it was there were so many different angles they were coming at it from, yes. which is is slowly becoming, I think, more of a mainstream idea in development mm. economics that people understand. Yeah. You can't do one thing. It's yeah. so many things that you have to do. Yes. And man, it's just really cool that the way you're describing this project seems mm. to coincide a lot with new, like more newer ideas that people are coming up with about mm. development. But these folks have been doing this for nearly a decade. Yes. And yes. so even you know, I think the World Bank or IMF could learn from mm, from yeah. from projects like yeah, this. For sure, mm-hmm. for sure, they can. Uh, you know, it's like there are a lot of things that count. Like when you come to to start a project like of a, of, of a school, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things you have to think of because a school has to go there where there there are kids, mm-hmm. and those kids they have to be fed, they have to be under permanent structures, mm-hmm. they have to be under. Uh, qualified teachers, they have to be people who are teaching them. Mm -hmm. So you have to think of all those things. Mm -hmm. And these people, what they have done for us, they are in the first place where we we could not afford to accommodate or even provide for every sector that is needed for the smooth learning of this school, they stood in. And with time, as, as they stood in, they went on like telling us that, uh, no, we are here, but for this time, of, for, 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 for you to do, you have to start now doing this. Mm-hmm. So at first, the school was like, the parents, the kids were studying just freely, they were not bringing anything. Mm-hmm. And we saw that even people started producing and even just, just putting the kids in the school without even uh, following up. But when we, we called them and we sat and we said, now they told us that we have now to start looking of how we can sustain ourselves. Yeah. So we started, when we told them we cannot just, you can't just tell us that we are going to sustain ourselves just 
from one night you tell us that we are going to such time yourself. It's sad. We needed to start now. You t- you needed to prepare us mm-hmm. towards that. So what they what they started to do. So some of the things parents started also to contribute. Mm-hmm. So in their contribution, that contribution was helped or it, it helped to pay the teacher's salary. Mm-hmm. And the other one, they used that one. Mm-hmm. And also we, we, we started uh, buying like some of the, the benches in mm-hmm. class. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we started also uh, getting certain things mm-hmm. at, at that, that, as, that are needed at, for the school to learn, like the pieces of chalk, those kind of things. Yeah. So now what they remain doing for us is they are feeding the kids. Mm-hmm. So that one we are still... Is that the only thing that they're doing now? The yeah, right, right now, right now they, are, they are feeding the, the kids. Mm-hmm. Other things are done by the school. Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe when they do come and they see there is something which is very big and it is needed for the school, mm-hmm. that one they can specifically handle that one. Mm-hmm. But right now they are handling the feeding. Yeah. Yeah. And with the feeding now, what we have also decided to do, because this is a village school, mm-hmm. people do agriculture, they do farming. Mm-hmm. So we, we decided to tell, the, we started telling the, the, the parents also to contribute uh, a certain portion of like, the 10 kilograms of maize and 10 kilograms of beans. Mm. So those ones, we are now trying to prepare them mm. on that one of feeding to mm. see if they move. Mm. How, how will we remain? Can we sustain the school? Can we sustain the kids even when we are feeding them? So we are seeing that. So we are still working towards that. Yeah. yeah. So to uh, wrap up here, first mm. off, yeah, thank you so much for being willing to, to take the time to, to chat. Um, okay. If someone was trying to start uh, a project and needed funding and was getting aid from from abroad or something like that mm. are there a couple things that come to mind um, <coughs> um, are there a couple things that come to mind that you would want to sort of convey to that person like some advice you'd give mm. on a development project that was taking place maybe tomorrow like what, what would be some of the first things you'd say to that person yeah uh, one of what uh, some of the things I think are more crucial in if someone is taking a is trying to put a donation in some place mm-hmm. first of all you have to be able there has to be a need mm-hmm. and and that need has to be with a person a person who is passionate about it about seeing it come to like being reached yeah so if there is no need and there is no a passionate person, like a person who is with passion to see that yeah. the need is what looked or is uh, reached. Well, it's a, it's a great point because mm. I uh, there seem to be lots of development projects where essentially people just don't even know the context of the place yeah. where they're donating yeah. money. And so they the money goes or the products go mm-hmm. and people don't even want it. And yeah. so it's just a big waste. Yes, and, but it again, is. it's it's a result of good intentions, but really bad planning. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you say there needs to be a need, that's just a there great point. There has to be a need. Mm-hmm. And, and to, to the need, there has to be a, a, a passionate person, like someone who is having a feeling 
to see that need is uh, reached. Yeah. They, then also that there has to be a follow-up mm -hmm. uh, because people, every individual needs to be a, to have someone who is accountable, who, whom he or she is accountable to. Mm -hmm. Because if you are just doing things without like nobody's accounting, nobody's mm -hmm. is there to to, to account yeah. to be to give the account to, so you will find that things are not working. Yeah. So there has to be a someone who is there that you count or two then also another thing there has to be the frequent visits mm. so the frequent visits mm -hmm. so people has, have to visit to see where the money is invested even though it's just a donation you don't just give in and you it's like a business you don't just start a business a mm -hmm. business and you just sleep over home and you think the business will go so you need to be following up that mm -hmm. business to see the progress and also there needs a, a, a talk a, the person who, who is donating and the person who is fulfilling the, mm -hmm. the, the purpose of the donation mm -hmm. so the, the people if they do talk from even the visits if someone visits a, a place and sees uh, that place that person can see even something like sharing ideas to get that, mm -hmm. that, that kind of thing. You share idea and sometimes even donating on purpose. Mm -hmm. Donating on purpose. Yeah, 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 donating on purpose. Like here, as I have been telling you, they do they did come and they saw that the problem we had was the, the looms, the, the jiggers we are taking the, yeah. the looms. So yeah. they donated the money purposely for, yeah. the, for working upon that problem. Mm -hmm. they, they came and they saw that ah, we, we have this land is like they are purchasing this land mm -hmm. so we they said money purposely for that so when they come to follow if even this individual gets to know that these people are coming mm -hmm. because they had donated the purpose for land and they find that that land is not in place uh -huh. automatically that shows that this person is not using our money the, the money we give is not used in the right way so if they if they come and they find the land is there because here in you in Uganda when you purchase land there are documents there are things which show the amount who bought who did buy so we, and that person presents those things if you calculate and you see you, you you just know that this person is what is first one so we can trust this person with other things mm -hmm. because if if you if someone is not First, what in just a donation that has come on purpose, like you have brought it maybe to construct a, a, a loom of five, maybe a, a loom of, of, of or maybe a building of five looms, and you find that it's not there, or even what is constructed is not when you consider the value of the amount mm -hmm. and even the, the building doesn't fit into the other value you said. Mm -hmm. You realize that this person is not trustworthy. You can't continue to keep donating or giving to that individual. Yeah. Yeah. So those kind of things, and even they will eliminate. Yeah. Those kind of embezzlements uh, or even not doing what has to be done. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's that's fantastic. Um, yes. Let me try to summarize what you okay. what you just said. So. We, number one, there needs to be a need in the community. You have to understand the context 
mm. of a community. Uh, there has to be maybe coinciding with need a passion yeah. for the project. Mm -hmm. um, it's not enough to see that there needs to be a school, but you need to have a group of people that really want their, to build the school and to yes. teach as well. Um, also, you mentioned evaluation mm -hmm. and constantly following up. Um, also, I sort of added this one there, like, um, I think it goes hand in hand with evaluation, but sort of a long-term goal in a project over maybe perhaps a decade and not mm. just a year mm. that some, you know, uh, projects from, mm. from bigger organizations try mm. to do. And then you also mentioned really great uh, constant communication between sort of mm. the donor and, and the person that's receiving the money. Mm. Um, yeah, that's uh, the... The collection of those things are, I think, missing a lot from so many development projects. And they, on the surface, when we talk about them, they seem so obvious. But I almost see it similarly to um, to math, kind of. Like, I'm sure you've, because you're a math teacher. Yeah. There's so many times when you're showing a student sort of perhaps the right way to go about solving an equation. Mm -hmm. And after they sort of see it, it almost seems obvious to them at that point. They're like, yeah. oh, I should have known. Yes. You know, it yes. seems so obvious when it's, when you get the answer, but mm -hmm. at the moment you seem so lost, at least for me growing up mm -hmm. in classes, I would feel incredibly lost sometimes. Yeah. But when someone helped me, I'd be like, oh man, that, yeah. that seemed yeah. easier. Like, I, I felt like I should have known that from the yes. beginning. Like things like understanding simply the context mm -hmm. of the, the, the community where you're trying to donate yes. seems so obvious, yes, but there is. are so many projects where people just don't understand, you know, the context and the need in the community, yeah. which, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that for a very long time, but, um, but thank you again for your time. There's one more question that I always ask um, guests uh, before we end, and that is if you could rewind time to when you were 16 years old, Given what you understand now, um, what kind of advice would you give yourself uh, if you could go back and talk to 16-year-old Moses? Uh, I, it doesn't have to be one thing, but are there just a few bullet points of advice that you mm. that you would would say to yourself? Yeah, uh, but I always I, I always regret that I, there is a, a lot of time that is wasted. Mm. So I, I regret that I wasted a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time. Mm. So when when it comes uh, when it comes to to to, to the Moses who was sixteen years by then, uh -huh. one thing I could tell that person is uh, you should try, you should try and that that, that you should try to utilize every opportunity. Mm you get because i know by that time there are a lot of opportunities that came our way but we, we wasted them thinking that yeah we are, we are still young you have to you are still young you have to wait for when you get old yeah so that slogan was more more there and many was opportunities were wasted and also there is another thing according to the system of our education it's like we are over dependent, like we, de we, we always depend like on the parents on other individuals. There is no dependence, like we, 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 we there is no independence in, in, in ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So you find that we, we lacked that basics. But uh, what I can 
the final thing I can tell Moses, I can tell myself is that is to grasp every opportunity that comes your way, yeah. my way. Don't, my yeah, way. don't waste time, but, but also mm. sort of the, the prerequisite to not wasting time is being mm. bold yes. and courageous. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, then also, get something to do. Mm. Yeah, not just waiting for the future. Ah, let me just, you know, there is a way in our nature, in our setting, we always postpone things. Yeah. Uh, when I get already, and even we used, to, we have that, lo- in our local languages, we have that kind of slogan. What is, uh, what is when, when I When I get old, Benakula. Benakula. Eh, Benakula. 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 So we always refer to the future. We always refer to the future. <laughs> yeah. So, and we ignore living, yet we are in the present. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, will, I always advise myself by yeah. back then. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I can't uh, say thank you enough. Uh, the, we could talk about this stuff for a really long time, yeah. but um, yeah, unfortunately time is limited. And, yeah. But thank you again, and uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking with you soon. Okay, thank you. Okay, so today I am speaking with three different guests, uh, that is three different Peace Corps volunteers that serve in the Masaka area. I think that's a correct assumption that I'll make there. Uh, The first guest I'm speaking to is Carrie Cowan Angel, otherwise known as just Cowan. Uh, She was born in Alabama. She got a BS in kinesiology at the University of Montevallo. She spent her summers uh, in undergrad as a camp counselor at all girls camps. Um, She later got her master's at the University of Alabama, Birmingham in exercise physiology. Uh, She also worked at a physical therapy clinic while she did her master's. Uh, So uh, yeah, Callan, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me, Don. Uh, My next guest is Christopher uh, Vacker. He was born in Georgia. He graduated with a BA in international affairs with a concentration in global public health. Um, He interned at Save the Children and the International Rescue Committee. He also conducted cancer research at Emory University. Uh, He also was a volunteer EMT and firefighter at the George Washington University Hospital. Uh, So, uh, yeah, Chris, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Don. All right, so the last guest that I'm speaking to is Jared uh, Riemann Schneider. Um, I'm glad I said that one right. He's from Illinois. Uh, he got his BS in Business Administration and Finance from Southern Illinois University. Southern Illinois University. Uh, Jared received recognition for being an outstanding chapter president in his fraternity. Kudos, Jared. Uh, and he currently is pursuing an MBA from Southern Illinois University as well. So thanks, Jared, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me down. All right, so um, today there isn't much of a theme for the podcast, but I wanted to talk about specifically sort of your organizations for, uh, for a bit. But first, I wanted to ask a general question about um, Insanine, um the grasshoppers and such, and what, uh, what has been your experience uh, with this? Can we start with Cowan? Could you describe for folks what that is? Um, so it's a 
local, what would you call that? It's delicacy. a delicacy, thank you. Yeah, it's a local delicacy. They deep fry, I think, grasshoppers around here. Mm -hmm. I guess there's just too many grasshoppers, so they have to eat them. <laughs> um, can I talk about when I tried one? Yeah, please, please. Okay. So I personally, I tried one of them, um, but in the process of putting it in my mouth, I noticed that they all still have their eyeballs, and um, I, I know that the wings and the antennas have been plucked off, but I just couldn't get over the crunch. Mm -hmm. Um, right. But yeah, it tasted yeah. like a good potato chip, but I had to spit it out. It's end. a salty snack, <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, the, the taste was pleasing, but the uh, uh, crunch was deceiving. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, um, um, yeah. Jared, what, uh, what do you think of Insanity? I mean, you just can't think about what you're eating when, when you're in the process. So, like, obviously, it's a Ugandan delicacy, and as Americans, we're not used to eating insects in general. So... Uh, when you see it, you kind of just like close your eyes as Callan did and you kind of just like chew down what you got. Um, at the end of the day, like it's not really that terrible. Um, a lot of the time, like uh, a lot of the locals, they fry the grasshoppers and they make them actually like relatively tasty. But in my opinion, I wouldn't uh, find myself going into the village to order grasshoppers by themselves moving forward, but they were fine for the, the one hand experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Chris, what do you what do you think about Insanity? Um, I like them. Um, do you? Uh, yeah, I actually think <laughs> they you? taste pretty good, Like especially like once you get over the fact of what you're actually eating. But I think it's kind of has the consistency of shrimp. That's kind of what I think, oh, you know, with the yeah, exoskeleton. Yeah. How, so. how much do you have to eat to fill yourself up? Or do you I don't know. I just have it as a snack. Oh, okay. Time, so. Okay. So you haven't used these to fully satisfy yourself. Yeah, not for a full yeah. meal. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, because it's that time of year when Insanity are everywhere, I wanted mm -hmm. to ask what your experiences has been with that. Um, the next question before we uh, dive in is, uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to how all of us met, actually, on our... I know we met at the staging event in Philadelphia, but... Um, I like apologies to Count and Chris. I don't uh, recall specifically the, the exact moment that we met because we were in a group and mm -hmm. such. But my uh, first moment of sort of getting to know Jared was we were on the bus when we first arrived in Entebbe. We're on the bus to Makono, and I was so tired because we'd been traveling like 20, 22 hours, and I was sitting in this really tiny seat in the bus that took up about like, I don't know, like two thirds of my back. Like it was just really small. And so, and I'm trying to sleep uh, just for the life of me. And I'm just falling, which the opposite direction that the bus is turning every few minutes. And then I immediately just sort of like give in and just sort of lean on Jared's shoulder. And I just, and I don't know Jared. <laughs> I'm just like, and I'm just trying to lean on you and sleep on you. And but you just looked at me like you were totally fine with it. You were like, homie, like I get, like you're really tired, so that's okay. And I just remember it was so specific to me and I just, it's hard for me to forget that, that exchange that we had when I was really tired. And you were just like, no man, it's cool. You can just, you can sleep on me if you want. Um, but yeah, uh, what uh, for Cowan and Chris, what were your first recollections of each other and Jared and myself? Um, for me, I think, uh, obviously at Mizardi, like we all interacted a lot, but then mm -hmm. language training, once we went to, um, once we went to Kayunga to learn Luganda, I think that's where we all kind of interacted a lot. We were in the same small language group that we kind of, um, we all chose like which groups you wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, I think like five of us, 
um, and we'd rotate with different language teachers each week. And so I think that was the first time we all kind of came together. Yeah, yeah. Callan, how about you? Um, for me, I don't think I have any huge first impressions for any of you, no offense, but the first <laughs> like three weeks or so were a total blur for me. Um, I know that I think I spent the most time with Jared at Muzardi um, and our little group. We had our Enos hanging up and that was a really nice kind of relief after a long days of training. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think going to language training, it was um, it was better to actually get to know people. But I don't have like that really one, yeah. that one moment. Yeah. yeah. It just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm uh, happy that we've all gotten to know each other much better over yeah. the last uh, several months. Um, so with that said, let's get into sort of what our organizations are doing. And um, let's start with Cowan. Could you just talk about the mission of your organization and what you do there? Mm-hmm. So my organization um, has a lot going on. They're called, do I need to say the name? Please, yeah. Okay. Um, we're Foundation of Hope, or shortened to FOHO. Mm-hmm. Um, we're based out of Masali, which is in Yindo in Masaka. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great organization. It started about 10 years ago as an OBC-based organization where um, our director spent most of his, um, he put most of his, what's that called? Attention. Attention, yeah. He spent, he put most of his attention towards um, caring for street children, as they call them, in Niendo. And so he built this entire facility that has like a dorm area. And we actually currently have like eight boys, I think, that live on our facility that are, they eat there, they go to our, we also have a school that we help are kind of in charge of. And so they also go to our school. Um, They don't have to pay school fees. They obviously are in very good contact with their family, but our organization's purpose is to counsel them, um, provide them social, psychosocial support, and also provide them with school, clothes, you know, basic necessities. Um, recently, we've been, in the last year, we've started being funded by Rakai Health Sciences Project, which turns our focus a lot more towards HIV testing and things like that. So we still have the boys, but we're way more focused during the week on going out for all these outreaches, doing HIV testing and linkages back to the health center. And um, yeah, so that's really what I do mostly right now is I work I work with the team on that and other, I'm assigned to two health facilities that I go and I help keep in contact. And where is your organization based? Masali. Masali? Yeah, Masali, which is on top of Niendo. Okay. Okay, yeah, in proportion to Masaka, yeah, is, I guess. The... Yeah, in proportion to Masaka. I know it won't help people on the podcast, but if you look literally right across when you're in this little hut out mm-hmm. here, it's got the telephone poles on it right across. Right, so right. Okay. it's right like maybe two kilometers from Masaka. Yeah, so your organization sounds like they're really in line with a lot of the PEPFAR stuff because they focus a lot on the orphans of vulnerable children Mm -hmm. and they essentially help kids board, like board at school, like they pay for their food and housing so they can Mm -hmm. spend all their time going to school and not be out and about. Yeah, and I think one of the most important things is they also try to help reconnect them to their closest family member, whether that be a parent, like a mother or father or you know, an aunt or grandmother, they, they take them back and um, they try to do counseling with also the parents. So yeah. I think that's really cool. They try to reconnect them with the families. Did they mention like a, like a definition of what it means to be, I know this might sound like an obvious question, but what an orphan is? Because I, sometimes it seems like you could just have like one parent or maybe both parents have passed away or like, what is that? How do you identify which kid qualifies? receive your services so I guess we 
we classify it differently than like the PEPFAR definition, which I don't know if, I think you're probably familiar, but it's um, if one or both parents have um, died of HIV or AIDS related deaths, mm-hmm. or um, someone in the family, do y'all remember the exact PEPFAR definition? My organization basically goes off of these kids, they have family members, a lot of them, they just don't have good ties to them, and they've literally been living on the streets in Yendo, so we go out, we don't, they've gone out and identified mm-hmm. that these boys are sleeping out here in this on the street every single day, and um, somehow they just get them to our org, we start interacting with them, build a, build a relationship, and they say, well, we have this facility, if you're interested, you can come up here, go to school, and we'll help reconnect you with your family over yeah. time. So um, there's not really a one basic criteria we follow, but as I understand, they just monitor these kids that live on the streets. Yeah. Um, we have all boys also, I should, I should add that. We have all boys. Is right there now. a reason for that? Or? We just only have one dorm room. I oh, think okay. that it's yeah, just, that yeah. Sense. And they're all like 12 to 15. So mm-hmm. I think that it's just um, safer that way. And I think mostly on the streets, I think it's mostly boys. The girls are in other places, unfortunately. The um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, is like, do they? How do they decide where they're going to look when they're? Do you know, or do they? Um. Is it just sort of community based, or are they sort of going other places? It's a little of both. So, um, I've only visited one site where they say that the boys sleep at night, mm-hmm. and um, that's they say that's where most of them gravitate towards. Um, in the evenings, it's just like a like a blown out wall of this building in this one part of Yendo. Um, and there's, there's just a dirt floor, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing in there but maybe some cardboard boxes to lay on. And they say that's where a lot of the boys gravitate towards. Um, yeah. That's just what I've been told. I obviously haven't gone out myself. Um, what was your second question? Um, just, yeah, like, uh, just where they look, like how do they know oh, where it's, to where It's to also community-based. So yeah. I think a lot of the kids, like we had a boy walk to us the other day and said that along the way people had pointed him into our direction. Oh, yeah. And he just wandered into the office because mm-hmm. he heard that they help boys mm-hmm. in our town. And so he came in and we did like a, a like a immediate session. We did like an intake and like asked him all these questions. And um, so it's a little bit of both. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Jared, could you talk about uh, yeah, where your organization's based and what they do and what you do there as well? Yeah, so I work for uh, Rural Uni- uh, Community Initiative for Development, uh, mm-hmm. RUCID. Uh, it's based in Kalungu District, which is just uh, north of Masaka. Mm-hmm. So what we focus on is kind of like the economic strengthening of OVCs. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to Cowan's organization, OVCs is referring to orphans and vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. And how we refer to o- OVC children is those who are affected with HIV AIDS. So what my organization does is we provide um, economic strengthening in terms of like business skills and assisting with uh, school fees for those mm-hmm. children who are uh, in a family who are afflicted by HIV AIDS. Um, so a lot of what I do is I work with those children as well as the village saving and loan associations within my organization to kind of uh, educate the OVC specifically as well as the caregivers within my organization mm-hmm. so that they both receive the education in terms of business skills um, that they need to survive moving forward in the future. 
How many VSLAs do you have right so, now? So currently we work with about seven VSLAs, um, but we also work with a few groups who aren't officially recognized as VSLAs. So there's a few youth groups within my district that I work like with. Young like entrepreneurship groups, like yeah, clubs and stuff? Exactly. So yeah. like we have a few youth groups who are um, focused on uh, different trades. We have one group who's focused on uh, carpentry, as well as one who's focused on like hairdressing. So they have their own groups that have their own uh, individual focuses. Um, but what we're trying to do is trying to translate those groups into more of a VSLA setting where we can focus more on business skills and um, in turn focus on youth entrepreneurship as a, as a main focus for those groups as well. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Uh, Chris, how about uh, you? Could you talk about your organization, what you do, and where they're based? Yeah, sure. So my organization is Health Access Connect, um, or HACK. Um, it was founded in 2014. Um, our main office is in Kampala, but we have field offices here in Masaka and on the islands in Kalangala. Mm-hmm. Um, our main focus is setting up outreach clinics. So the, the main concept is that um, in Uganda you have universal health care, you have free health care through government health facilities, mm-hmm. um, but there are a lot of remote villages that are too far away from these health facilities to um, access those uh, services. So what we focus on are villages that are over five kilometers away from the nearest health facility and we set up monthly health outreaches by facilitating the transport between um, like health center twos, threes, and fours, um, which are like smaller than a hospital but um, can provide some basic services. Um, And we bring those health workers and their supplies to the Mm -hmm. villages. Um, A lot of the services that we provide are... um, are like HIV, AIDS, um, testing and treatment, malaria treatment, uh, prenatal care, immunizations, um, the whole gambit. And so kind of what I'm starting to, an element that I would like to bring in to the organization is um, capacity building with the village health team members, which Mm. are the community health workers here in Uganda, Um, doing trainings with them so that they can uh, do health promotion talks on a whole bunch of different uh, public health messages. Awesome. Um, the You mentioned something in your bio, apologies, I didn't mention this, but I wrote it down in my notes because I wanted to uh, ask you the question specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk to me about what, it said in your bio that you were interested in like health inequalities. Mm-hmm. And I think especially in regards to development and economics, we think a lot about wealth inequality, income inequality. But could you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say health inequality, because I think that's interesting and just really important as well in regards to development. Right. So, I mean, one of the biggest inequalities in healthcare, of course, um, and I think you see this not just in Uganda, but kind of across the world, is urban centers versus rural areas have vastly different access to healthcare. So, um, besides, you know, poverty and wealth, you also have um, instances where even in the rural United States, you know, you could be um, an hour or two away from the closest hospital. So, um, and in the United States, we have a lot more resources, but here in Uganda, that could be the difference between life and death. So, like, the classic example and kind of why Hack was founded was because we had a lot of HIV/AIDS patients who, just for lack of being able to get their antiretroviral drugs, because mm-hmm. the health facility was too far away or having, uh, you know, decades of their life shaved off. So um, being able to kind of level the playing field by having, you know, smart interventions that are sustainable um, and that don't even cost that much, but just have 
um, you know, kind of a new approach. I mm -hmm. think that's that's kind of what I'm interested in. Yeah. What is your thoughts on um, the extent to which there's a gender bias between health in Uganda and around the world, really, the difference between women that get access to health and men that get access to health? Well, so, yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, gender inequalities. Um, one of the interesting things, though, is that actually women tend to come to our outreaches more than men do. So mm -hmm. I think, on the one hand, it's also because there are a lot of um, a lot of the women in Uganda are in charge of you know child rearing and taking care of their children who might be sick. Mm -hmm. So they'll come for whether that's antenatal visits or um, for childhood immunizations or other things. They're the ones who are really kind of um, targeted by a lot of the public health campaigns to bring their children to the outreaches. So we actually see a lot of women. Um, something that we're adding to our outreaches, though, is um, family planning, because that is a big, um, you know, a big issue in terms of uh, leveling the playing field for for um, gender equality. Mm -hmm. So, in order to have, ensure that women have um, autonomy over their own sexual reproductive health, um, mm -hmm. is a big important step. Yeah, the the family planning is uh, really really important, and the. The specific lack of the like there just seems to be I don't know at least for my community there's like no sense of what family planning even is mm -hmm. and there's one uh, one healthcare worker that's going to be here and they've the signs have been posted on the health center I go to um, and I volunteer at for months you know advertising that uh, you know this person's gonna be here I think it's uh, December 10th or something like that like because mm -hmm. it's the one time that the family planning professional is going to be here and everyone's got to know and it's the I kid you not the post has been up there for several months and this is the one time probably in a in a while that we're going to have a, a family planning expert like around mm -hmm. um, and so yeah family planning is just it's scarce and it's it's just really important um, I wanted to ask you also about um, like even at the health center I'm at uh, the vast majority of everyone that shows up are women, but my concern is that who, like who are they bringing? In the sense, it seems obvious that the women will bring the children, but are the children males or females? In the sense, like, because a lot of the data that you'll look at from the World Health Organization or the World Bank or something like that indicates a really strong gender bias between like women or, or girls and boys that get healthcare. And so do you, the women that show up bringing their children, is that mainly, do you, I know this isn't, it's a small sample, it's not representative of right. course, but, but what is your experience with that? Right, um, so unfortunately I don't think I have enough of a, a sense of like, or the statistics offhand to be able to comment accurately about that, but, but I agree that there is, you know, kind of a, a gender inequality that has to kind of be addressed, um, and a lot of that has to do with um, you know, challenging gender norms. Right, so. yeah, yeah. Um, so the next question I wanted to pose to all of you, and we'll start with Cowan for this one. Um, uh, could you talk about a little bit about what sustainability means to you and, and how your organization is trying to achieve sustainability with their goal? Because I think this is a really big problem in regards to a lot of organizations and their objectives because they're just, the list goes on and on about objectives that aren't really sustainable. You know, this is why I could walk up to the street and hand 
money to the first person that walks by, but this that's not seen as development because it didn't it didn't make anyone more productive. It didn't uh, you know educate anyone. Um, so could you talk to me about what sustainability is to you and how your organization is trying to achieve that? So to me, sustainability is um, the ability to have a plan and carry it out from the beginning to the end without having to stop and reallocate funding and finding other ways to pay for it and scrambling to get it done um, in the terms of like a community-based organization. Um, being able to just carry a plan from point A to point B, have the funding set for it, it's kind of self-sufficient at some point and um, then you don't have to really be scrambling for money all the time. And unfortunately, uh, sustainability is the biggest problem I see with my org. Like right off the bat, I saw it because they have all of these things they want to do. Like we have our boys, we have all these HIV outreaches and like all these goals to meet with Rakai. And then they also want to start a bakery and do all these, help these boys yeah. start IGAs, things like that. We don't have, the only sustainable funding we have, which is oftentimes even kind of unreliable, is from Rakai, which listeners may not know is also funded by the CDC. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they're funding like research and, and help in our area and, and most in a lot of Uganda actually um, for HIV AIDS research and helping people become medicated, find out that they're positive, stay in touch with the, with the facilities and things like that. So um, most of our funding comes from there. Actually, right now, I think solely our funding comes from there, which means we can only use that for those outreaches. And there's no money coming in to, for, to pay the staff to mm. help the boys. To um, We're supposed to have lunch every day provided, and it's like sometimes it's not there, which means we don't eat, the boys don't eat, um, I don't know. I don't know if this can, should be off the record, but I was there the other day, and... Um, and so we didn't have lunch, and I, they wanted me to sit down and entertain the boys for a while, but they, they asked, uh, I was starting to ask them, like, what are your challenges? Like, what could we do to make your, make things better for you? They were like, well, we don't have soap right now, right. and we don't have toothbrushes, and we don't have anything, we haven't had anything to eat today, and we're supposed to be providing for them, and like, um, so that, that's hard coming from me, from my position, but, um, but yeah, so I think used to in the past, are we've been successful when we've been funded by like outside people, but it's always in like a short span. So like six months, somebody's funding for six months or someone gives us one big chunk of money for the year and it's spent this way, that way, and there's not much accountability for it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, come December, we have no money. We're not renewing contracts with people. What are we gonna do next year? Um, that's where I find issues with sustainability in my organization. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, man, it's all too common, I feel like, in a lot of projects where you're, you're promising a lot more than, than what you can actually give because, in a way, your incentive is, the, stru- the incentive structure is drawn up that way because you're trying, you have to get money mm-hmm. from donors and such, and so you have to, in some way, promise a lot, even if you maybe can't, you know, come through with all of those promises and such so 
Yeah, it's really complicated, and uh, yeah, thanks for sharing. I, I, I don't have a, a great uh, uh, response or comment for that, but thanks for sharing. Can I add one more yeah, thing? Yeah, please. I see like one of the biggest issues is like the only people we can get funding from right now is seems to be Rakai, and I know that my supervisor has tried applying for all kinds of different grants and stuff, yeah. and that's the only place the funding's coming from, so that's where our focus has to be, and we're turning away from all these other things that we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and, and there, there's just there's countless health centers that are applying for funding for Rakai Health Services. Yeah. And so they, they really, they're essentially going to follow the route of how can they please the CDC mm-hmm. more. And if the CDC is giving them money to find HIV positives mm-hmm. or something like that, then, um, yeah, this is a whole other rabbit yeah. hole we could go down it, if it we is. want. But, uh, <laughs> and maybe we'll talk about it later. But, uh, but yeah, thanks, thanks yeah. so much mm-hmm. for sharing. Um, Jared, could you talk about... Um, sustainability, what that means to you, and how your organization is trying to achieve that? In terms of sustainability, I think my org kind of takes a philosophy that we establish a goal, but we try to uh, generate ideas of how to uh, overcome uh, obstacles that we face in terms of meeting that goal. Um, I, I take the philosophy, and I think that my organization also takes the same philosophy, that it's better to teach a man how to fish as opposed to giving a man to fish. and. I think uh, Callan and Chris would agree with me that when we interact with villagers um, on a day-to-day basis, many people are asking for money on a regular day basis. And we recognize as volunteers that giving that individual money is not going to be a sustainable outcome for that individual. And uh, in turn, we we, we know that uh, developing knowledge and uh, generating that education that those villagers are going to have is going to be what's going to be more sustainable to their uh, individual success as well as the success of our organization. So um, the way that we take is we try to generate um, ways that we can educate the volunteers and educate the, the villagers in our um, community um, to find sustainable ways to just support themselves. Um, as you see within Cowan's organization and many NGOs with, uh, here in Uganda is we're all relying on funding from the CDC or from Rakai or from a variety of different sources and when those fundings aren't available. We have to uh, come up with creative solutions to to meet those objectives. Um, and what my organization does is we 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 try to like we we recognize those objectives. But what we do is we try to uh, to find a common uh, objective for our organization. And um, in terms of our, our community members, um, what we do is we try to educate them to support themselves uh, despite those uh, those challenges that we might face. Yeah. The do you think I remember one of the um, counterparts uh, she was she worked at one of the um, an organization here in Uganda and this was at in-service training during the conference we had a few weeks ago and she stood up and she was uh, a host country national and she was saying that a lot of the funding sometimes seem seems like it's enabling organizations to not necessarily be super efficient and sort of there's this element of dependency that a lot of these organizations have, I think, and could you comment on that? Like, do you think that, um, I know that we're fairly new here, and so all of our words should be, you know, taken with a grain of salt about maybe uh, improvements or something that our organizations could uh, could implement, but do you think it's, do you see that in your experience? Yeah, uh, I think in my organization specifically, we currently are having struggles with funding 
Um, us too, we've been having some issues with Rakai and just with uh, funding sources overall. And I think my organization, and I think I could speak for most organizations, is when we don't have funding, we lose the motivation to do um, what our organizations are um, primarily wanting to do. So we lose sight of our goals um, when we don't have that funding. So um, what I think my organization needs to focus on specifically even me is like despite the lack of funding there's still opportunity in our village to to uh, have sustainable um, outcomes um, we don't necessarily need funding to to do things in the village that um, are going to be sustainable and are going to be beneficial to the villagers that are in uh, our community so yes in, in one sense we're dependent on the funding to uh, support our employees or our colleagues that are a part of our organizations but in terms of our overall objective within the community, um, I don't think we necessarily need to be dependent on that funding um, because there are ways that we can uh, generate sustainable outcomes for those villagers despite that funding. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just most of the time concerned about what we're telling and promising people. Mm -hmm. um, if we're promising kids school or mothers healthcare, um, you know, are we clear about how much school and healthcare we're trying to give them and you know, where are the lines and in, in, uh, is that really upfront in bold kind of because it's it's frustrating to me to think that we're promising things that that folks can't maintain or keep. And so but that's, uh, you know, why we're having the discussion. But uh, I think that's even like a point of sustainability is like it, we need to take away the philosophy of promising things to villagers is like in terms of sustain sustainability, we're educating people on how to sustain themselves. Yeah, not yeah. having them be dependent or reliable on the promises that other people make to them. So if they're relying on funding from other sources, if they're relying on volunteers from other sources, if they're relying on a variety of other factors, yeah. that's not sustainable um, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the word. So um, what we're trying to do is to find them ways to uh, generate success for their own selves instead of being dependent on other people and other sources. Right, right. Um. Chris, do you want to comment on what uh, sustainability is? Yeah, definitely, because I think actually this is one of the strengths of my organization. Um, from the get-go, when they were founded, they, they built sustainability into their model. So all of our outreaches um, could actually operate without our organization um, once we set it up. So the wow, whole idea... That's, that's awesome. Yeah, and, and ideally we want to... I mean, the entire point of development is that we're writing ourselves out of our own jobs, right? Like... If uh, you know, I want to give you a clap for that one. That's really that's a really great. I line. mean, if, yeah. if development if if development work is successful, then we shouldn't have a job in twenty five to fifty years, right? Um, hopefully, but so like my organization, what we do is every um, patient who comes to our outreach clinic contributes two thousand shillings, and that pays for the transportation allowance and also the um, the safari day allowance, which is the term the Ministry of Health uses for. Um, the the payment to the health workers for their time. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then the services themselves, like the it's government medications, um, and the services themselves are are free of charge. So, um, that two thousand shillings is a lot less than maybe the fifteen or twenty thousand shillings they'd have to pay mm -hmm. to actually take a boat, a motorcycle, or a taxi to the nearest health facility. So it's a win win for everybody, um, and also it's a sustainable model. So. I think that that's something that our organization really appreciates, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, like, I'm wondering about um, the sort of supply and demand aspect of the government funding for medications and such, mm -hmm. and do you see that 
there's enough um, awareness and sort of um, analytics on uh, how many people are showing up and how much you need to provide for them mm -hmm. in the sense like I guess in short do you find that sometimes your organization is running out of things ever because my the health center that I'm at we we haven't had any measles vaccines mm -hmm. for the last two weeks and so how does that has that been pretty good are you is are they good at sort of understanding how much they need and how many people are showing up yeah so drug stockouts that they call them frequently are yeah, anytime they don't have the medications, or the vaccines, or things that they need. Um, and unfortunately, that's a supply chain issue that um, affects a lot of government health facilities in Uganda. And that is usually the biggest cause for some of our outreaches to be either delayed or canceled. Mm -hmm. um, so it is something that we're working to like help the um, district and uh, national government um, with improving upon that. So, um, but we are kind of reliant on um, you know, the powers to be in terms of uh, national medical stores and joint medical stores and uh, the government health facility drug supplies. So um, a, a lot of that has to do with kind of the management and, um, and making sure that they, they've ordered enough. Um, but then from the donor end as well, making sure that, because a lot of these medications are being donated from, um, you know, the U.S. Or, or Western Europe or other places. So yeah. just making sure that... Um, you know, there's usually there's it's not a funding issue so much as kind of a supply and demand and a chain, supply chain management issue. Yeah, yeah, I um, it made me think about because um, your organization seems like they're doing some really great work, and it made me think about um, the the fact that it seems like a lot of organizations there's not a lot of communication within NGOs in the sense that NGOs show up and they're they're here to do a mission or have objectives. And they don't necessarily communicate a lot with other NGOs. And it seems like you there needs to be a bigger sort of web of communication between everyone mm -hmm. in order to find what works and find what doesn't. Because um, they're all doing the same job, mm -hmm. or some of, mostly the same. They're, they're looking for OBCs, they're trying to create income generating activities. Mm -hmm. And so if we had a bigger web of communication between NGOs, they could share with each other what works and what doesn't. And when I hear you talk about how seemingly successful your organization is in regards to its sustainability, I'm thinking, why the fuck can't other people like ask you about why you're doing so good? You know, like, mm -hmm. and so it seems like so many other health facilities need to have their model based off of your model. And I guess I'm just wondering why that doesn't happen more. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it is a unique model, and it, it's definitely a model that we advertise that's available to be copied by other organizations. I think um, one of the issues is in terms of charging beneficiaries, people start to get, you, you have to spend a lot of time explaining what the money goes towards because initially a lot of people are so reliant on free donations sure. that as soon as you ask them, even for a small sum like 2,000 shillings uh, once a month, um, that even like in some of the most remote places, like that, that's a small enough, um, allowance that people can can afford which, to pay which is the equivalent yeah. of about like 40 cents like right us exactly. usd something like that yeah so um so we've we have to have long conversations about that because people are sometimes confused about well i thought these services are supposed to be free but as long as you kind of frame it as well this is actually you know to, to offset the transport and actually you're you're ending up ahead because you would pay more money to get to the health facility so i think people who are based at health facilities would have more of a challenge just because 
those resources do have to be provided for free. Sure. Um, and also with the OVC um, and you know housing children, of course you can't ask children for for contributions if they're not uh, you know earning money and stuff. So I I understand that there's these issues are very complex and there's no mm -hmm. simple issue simple answer to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks so much for, for sharing. Um, man, there's, there's a few questions I want to get to, but we've already been chatting for a minute, um, but we'll try to get through all of these. Essentially, we have about 15 minutes before I want to get to the, the conclusion of our, of our chat. But, uh, but yeah, could we, I just want to do sort of a rapid fire here and go through all of you um, quickly. Could, starting with Cowan, could you talk a little bit, just for a couple minutes about... Um, the idea of just of opportunity cost with your organization, like is there other things maybe that uh, your organization could be doing as beside from what they're doing right now? Like is, because I think this is a question that not a lot of folks ask themselves. They come into it thinking, I want to do this, and then they get there and they keep, they just go gun ho to accomplish that task. Um, and is there something else they could be doing with their time and their resources and their money that might benefit your community more than what you're doing right now? I think that the general goals of my organization have a great plan to benefit the community, but yeah, the issue is there's, there's we can't really benefit much because we're not able to do a lot of the things because of the lack of funding, it's kind of mm. cyclical. Yeah. So I do think if we had a better way for the organization itself to become sustainable like we just talked about and maybe make it have its own revenue somewhere even if it's just a little bit just to be able to you know provide a couple more services in the long run eventually my my supervisor wants our our compound it already has like the skeleton of a health facility he wants to be able to offer health services to eventually construction has stopped because of lack of funding and so I think if there was any way, um, and I'm trying to think myself too for my organization um, while I'm here, if there's any way for us to become more sustainable, then I think that our services, the model that we have, if we were to be sustainable, could really, really benefit our community so much more, like tenfold, compared to what we're doing right now. Great. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Jared, how about you in regards to opportunity costs? Yeah, in terms of the goal of my organization, we focus specifically on the OVCs. Um, but I think one way that we could grow in our organization is focusing on other TAR groups as well. So like those VSLAs um, are very important in terms of the village setting um, because that focuses on the caregivers as opposed to just the OVCs and the children specifically. Um, but due to the lack of funding as many NGOs have faced that we haven't been devoting a lot of attention to those VSLAs. Um, in addition, uh, uh, as opposed to OPCs and VSLAs, we can also focus on like the Bodomen with uh, which we see in our villages because those um, those Bodomens are uh, very important to the integrity and to the uh, viability of our entire village. Um, so there, there's a lot of different ways that we can educate them in terms of um, business skills as well as uh, health-related topics as well. So um, I think one way that my organization could focus on is. is Yes, it's great to have one objective to focus on the OBCs, but we need to, to view the whole community um, entirely, not just one segment of that community. So um, if we focus on uh, multiple different target groups, I think we're going to make an overall impact that's more beneficial to the community as opposed to just focusing on one subsegment of that community as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, how about you? Um, in terms of opportunity cost, um, I'm not sure in the classic definition of opportunity cost that there's anything that we're kind of missing out on. But I would say that maybe kind of reaching out more to to reaching youth and children. Um, a lot of our outreaches are 
during the work day and so a lot of kids are at school yeah so we mostly see adults um and then we're, what we're trying to do is actually get our model picked up by the um the ministry of health on the national level and then ideally maybe they could take this over and and take it um, right now we're just in five districts but take it nationally so um that's that's kind of one of our goals how big is your organization um right now in terms of staff we have about um 13 staff members um but uh you know, so we're we're kind of a small footprint, um, but we're we're looking to expand. But that your thirteen staff members aren't including all of the health outreaches that you're right. So what we we're reliant on we have a field officer basically for each um, district, and then we have management staff in Kampala. Um, but the the staff who are actually providing medical services are the government health workers. So they're the ones who um, are able. To, and this that again is why it's sustainable because once we set up the model. That the health workers can go to the villages by themselves. They don't need us to be there. How many districts does your do you know? How many? We're currently in five districts: so Masaka, Chotera, Rakai, uh, Luengo, and Kalangala. Oh, wow. And we're looking to expand. So. Yeah, that's really cool. Wow. Um, uh, another. Let's keep these sort of rapid fire here because we we only have a few minutes left. Uh, when we talk about uh, funding. I wanted to ask, uh, go back to Cowan on this one. Um, your funding creates a bunch of different incentives for uh, organizations to pursue, like you know, targets and benchmarks and things like that. And how do how does the funding that you get affect the incentive structure that your um, organization has at the moment? Um, I think it it has a huge a huge impact on the kind of work that we're doing. I think for one, it's hard um, since we don't really have our own, we don't have our own income outside of funding, like the organization itself, it's hard to even pay the employees. So imagine going to work, you know, sometimes six days a week, five days, six days a week and working all day and then not getting your paycheck at the end of the month because there's a lack of funding. And so that, that really, really impacts motivation and that's a really low incentive to do your job really well. And so I think that within, with a sustainable structure or like a continuous funding or something stable, right. that I think that would be the best incentive for, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question right, but I think that would be a really good incentive for, first of all, just like the baseline for our employees to go in and, and really, really make a huge, not that they don't make an effort, but like um, for me, that would be a huge incentive if I were getting paid um, yeah. or waiting on a paycheck. But um, yeah, I'm not really sure how much else I can speak to that. No, yeah, I mean, the, the conversation is just about, like, because there, there isn't like a set in stone solution for the problem, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times, people are just uncomfortable with talking about uh, how funding affects what our priorities are. And so, because it's just a big deal, but, and, and people just don't, I don't think, talk about it or disclose it as much as they should mm -hmm. I think and so because funding really is sort of just the that's I mean that's the quarterback that's the that's the nucleus of the of the cell I mean this is it's the the pillar of of the of the building you know what I mean like that's that's how people can do anything and so you just we have to be able to have the conversation about who's who who's the bloodline to this whole organization and that's going to affect everything. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we just have to be able to talk about that because sometimes the person that's giving it really is affecting the cuz they want 
to have proof that their ideas are working. Maybe if you're being funded by some folks in, the, in Western Europe or the US, but their ideas of progress and their objectives sometimes don't match on to the context and the situation that's happening actually in Uganda. So the objectives are sort of don't overlap as much as they should. And so I think it sometimes creates to an inefficiency in where we're putting our priorities. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Jared, do you want to mention your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, I want to comment on something that you said, how um, funding is kind of like the quarterback to most of the organizations that we have. And what I've seen is that the funding specifically is mostly the incentive that my employees or the members of my organization have to, to fulfill the objectives that they have their organization. Yeah. It's not the objectives itself, it's the funding. Um, and one thing that I see within my organization is that people are doing this because it's necessarily a job to them. Like they're working for this organization to fulfill the objectives, but when there's no funding for that organization, they don't have the incentive to actually fulfill the objectives that the organization is going for. And that's something that I struggle with specifically as a volunteer because um, as volunteers, obviously we're working well, without a paycheck for the most part. And we, we aren't reliant on the funding that our organization is facing. And we are able to do the work that we want to do despite the fact that our organization might not have funding. But our organization specifically don't have that same um, objective or philosophy. And that's something that we're struggling with. So uh, I, I think there has been a very big dependent, uh, dependency on that funding. Um, I think they, that sometimes uh, NGOs are more focused on the funding as opposed to be focusing on the objectives of their overall organization. That, that might just be my opinion, um, but that's something that I see a lot within some NGOs is when they don't have that funding, they um, tend to stop projects or they stop um, focusing on what their overall objective is. And I think that's something that we need to focus on specifically. Yeah, and, and this funding isn't just for you know, the projects that they're trying to do, this funding pays for their kids, mm -hmm. you know, uh, school fees and their family's health care and their, uh, the food and the groceries that they're buying and such. So it, it's, yeah, the incentives can definitely be talked about, I think, much, much more. But uh, Chris, do you want to um, talk to us about funding and how that affects the incentives? Yeah, and, and specifically, I'd just say that the... Um, like, you know, going into the community, doing these community needs assessments, you see, like, what, uh, what people actually care about on a day-to-day -day level. And, um, and a lot of them, for, like, a lot of our communities, have to do with, you know, access to clean drinking water, access to uh, enough latrines in, um, in a village. Um, but those aren't quite, you know, the sexy things that a lot of global donors necessarily... Uh, that's usually maybe fifth or yeah, tenth or fifteenth yeah. on the list of things, right? So, like, even if you think about our funding as health volunteers here in Uganda, it's all HIV funded, right, through PEPFARS, and our entire framework is pretty much revolves around HIV. And then there's other elements to, you know, malaria or wash or other things that um, that's kind of secondary. So I think it's it's just interesting to see, like, when you actually talk to people on the ground, what what's the the most important thing to them versus what's sometimes the most important thing for the funder. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so we're almost out of time, but I wanted to pose two sort of ending questions to all of you. Um, and we'll go back to Cowan to start this one. Um, could you um, talk about just, so you, you showed up here, like I think all of us did, with a set of expectations and how things were going to go and what it was going to be like, but um, how has the experience changed 
your ideas of what development is and um, could you talk about like if essentially if you were going to define what development was before you got here and then define it you know six months into our service uh, what change sort of occurred in that can I answer this one last oh sure sure we'll, we'll, we'll go to we'll go to Jared for this one so I think one thing that I want to point out is that we had expectations of what we expected our experience to be when we came to uh, Uganda. And those expectations were based on facts and things that we didn't even understand at the time. Like we were living in the United States, we had one philosophy and one way of thinking. And when we came to Uganda, that entire way of thinking was completely changed once we came to country. And I think this is one thing that I, I've come to be passionate about is in terms of what I refer to, and Dom, I think you'd refer to this as the African illusion, like mm -hmm. people have their assumptions about what Africa is, what economic development is in Africa, and what we can do to support the people of Africa. And to be quite honest, when we were living in the United States, or me specifically, I thought I knew what I wanted to do or I thought I knew what I wanted my, uh, or what the villagers of my community wanted to accomplish, but I, I really didn't know any of that information until I actually came to live in the village and live with the community. So economic development um, is really a subjective topic. I think it's relative to the person that you're speaking to. So like when you were actually living in the village, people have different opinions of what they refer to as economic development or what they want to see in terms of growth. and. They might have different objectives or different goals than, than we have. And I think that's important to realize as well. So like we might have these expectations, but they might not align with the expectations of the villagers or the community members that we're working with. So yes, it's great to have some expectations, but also we need to be recognizing that those expectations might not be valid and those expectations not uh, might not be in, in alignment with um, well, the community goals. Valid in the sense like it doesn't map onto everyone's idea of what progress exactly. is. And, and that could be a whole, in fact, I might yeah, try to do a, a show on that. Just what is progress? Exactly. Essentially, it would be, it would be an interesting topic. But, exactly. uh, but Chris, do you have uh, something to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I kept hearing from other RPCVs and other, um, other people who worked in Uganda before just saying, you know, try as hard as you can not to come in with expectations. And of course, you can't come in with a blank slate. Everyone has their preconceived notions and things yeah. like that. So I think, um, but, and there, there's definitely been a lot of things that have just been so much different than, than I expected. I, and I think the, the biggest thing is like every day I wake up thinking, you know, I'm learning and getting so much from this experience. Um, and, and I just hope that I can contribute like half as much you know back to the community so um, I think just because you know whether it's you're working with health workers or working with um, government officials um, everyone of course here understands the local context a lot better than I ever hoped to um, and so just being able to be a sponge soak it all up and then try to give uh, you know constructive feedback where possible yeah yeah totally I, such a hallmark of you know so many projects that people try to do is uh, they come in and they, for, you know, an example would be like trying to start a piggery and, and sort of breed a bunch of pigs in sort of an all-Muslim community. <laughs> and you're just like, you know, people come in and they really have tried to do that in some places and you're just like, and, yeah, and they just don't understand the context of it. And I'm not, I'm not saying this because I, I think that, um, yeah, I feel like when I say that it's like, well, I know, you know, but it's like, it's something I've learned too, like while I've been here one of the most important things before you're going to implement anything is just knowing 
what's going on. It's like the equivalent of having a conversation with someone and just knowing what their name is and knowing, you know, just their, a little bit of their background if you're really trying to help them out in whatever, you know, situation they're dealing with. But, Callum, do you, do you uh, want to add something to that? Okay, yeah. I think, um, so I think before I came, you know, I got a lot of questions from people saying, well, why are you going for two years? Like, that is a long time. Like, why are you going for that long? And in my brain, um, on a different note, like, I was thinking, well, you know, we have all these things to do and, like, two years almost isn't enough time and, like, I'll be waking up every week and have a full schedule getting here and realizing that development is a much slower process than people let on and that it takes two years for us to be here, sometimes longer for other volunteers because it's so important to integrate and get to know your community and get to know their needs like both of you have talked on. And um, for me this week, um, I didn't check off any of the things on my list. And sometimes that's just how your week goes and um, that's from a lot of contributing factors. But um, but yeah, so I think development's a slow process and sometimes it just takes you a while to to learn what people around you need and um, that's the most important part. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, the, the uh, just again, the, there's several really big um, hallmarks of, of development and one of them is that people don't know the context and also the, the short-sightedness of, you know, we want to please donors and so we got to get these results back, we got to, you know, document the data, get it back to Washington and wh or wherever they're getting funding from so we can get more funding, but but thanks so much for sharing. Um, we only have about five minutes left, so um, again, rapid fire with the last question here. Um, if you could rewind a little bit and just go back to, or not rewind, but just uh, leap from where you are right now to 16-year-old Cowan, uh, what would be sort of, not just one thing, because I think that's kind of a bad question, but what would what's some of the first couple of things that come to mind you would tell her um, uh, what advice would you give her? Are there a few bullet points you'd, you'd provide? In terms of... Just just your experience or what you're pursuing or, or okay. life in general, just yeah. what, what would you say to her? Okay. I would tell her that she's doing a great job, first of all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> yeah. I think you're doing really great. Stop doubting yourself, bullet number one. Bullet number two, and I think I've done a decent job of this in like my most recent years, but like seize every opportunity um, to learn and to experience things outside of your comfort zone because that can take you so much further than um, sitting in a classroom and taking a course on economic development. Yeah. You know, being No, somewhere. no, I, I totally agree <laughs> yeah. on that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, three, just keep a positive attitude. And I try to do that the best I can, but I think that that's also one of the most important assets that anyone can carry with them. Yeah. Um, it can take you a lot farther than, yeah, than yeah. you think. Yeah. Jared, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? I think first off, I'd tell myself to uh, stop worrying about my uh, sophomore and high school girlfriend and to start focusing on <laughs> biology because yeah. that's uh, more important in the long run. Yeah. Um, but in terms of this, I, I think to uh, tell myself that to recognize that we both have different perspectives and those uh, perspectives might change that... Um, if we view ourselves as Americans, like we have a very task-oriented philosophy as opposed to many Ugandans who have a more relationship-based um, philosophy. And it's like recognizing that our philosophy is not the only way of thinking yeah. and that there, um, there are benefits of other people's way of thinking. So like being open um, to listening and, and understanding the way that other people think. 
um, because I think by taking that philosophy, we, we'd be better suited to understand the needs um, of our community and we'd be better suited to actually work within that community moving forward. Yeah, no, it's, it's like this, this really profound sort of stark understanding that it doesn't matter where someone comes from and if you know they have a totally different sort of cultural perspective, it in no way until you hear out their whole argument disqualifies them from giving those thoughts about how things should be. But in a way, because of you know different types of perhaps nationalism or something, we think that we have to exclude other people to be who we want to be. Yeah, no, I just I find that interesting, and, and thank you for sharing. Uh, Chris, what would you tell your 16-year-old self? Oh, boy. Um, um, we only have, uh, yeah, we have about two, or no, two minutes, three minutes, two minutes. Yeah, I, would, I would tell myself, um, <laughs> you know, kind of just echoing Cowan and Jared, just like seize every opportunity. I think um, maybe my one regret kind of in college was like trying to do too many different things at once and like too many different clubs and activities and things. And so like really like do something that you enjoy. Um, but again, also push yourself outside your comfort zone. Um, and then also, you know, uh, really don't forget all your languages that you've been learning in high school and college. Because <laughs> those no, really I, open yeah, doors. I don't, I don't remember any Spanish that I, yeah. I, I failed that one. For sure. yeah. Yeah. So, um, because uh, languages really open doors. Um, and when you, even walking on the street, you know, speaking to someone in Luganda, their, their face really lights up. And yeah. it just shows like a, an element of respect that, you know, you're, you're trying to make an effort to assimilate into their culture. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, wow. Well, thanks so much, all of you, uh, Cowan, Jared, and Chris, for uh, talking to me today. Um, thanks, uh, Cowan. I know you were you were sick today, but thanks for <laughs> showing up to uh, to have the conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. And man, I always feel like I just learned so much from these conversations. So Thank thanks you, for thanks for chatting with me. Thanks, Dom. Thanks, Well, hello. Rachel, how we doing today? Yeah. She gets it. There's so much happening.